Hi everybody, AML here. Um, I've been working with Dr. Bleasdale to set a, some time aside so we can ask her some questions about coronavirus, um, coronavirus preparedness, personal protective equipment, um, and other questions. Uh, so please listen to this interview and uh, I am also sending a link to a survey in case you guys have any other questions. Um, Dr. Bleasdale is happy to answer any questions you guys have. Thank you and enjoy. All right, so Dr. Bleasdale, um, welcome to the Chiefcast. Uh, welcome again. This is uh, the second time we've had you on. Uh, a lot of happenings with COVID. Uh, so I think uh, maybe we can have this conversation. Um, and I pulled in some questions that perhaps are popular questions that folks may have. Um, so I understand we're moving towards universal masking. Maybe we can start with that. So what's this whole thing with universal masking? What are we doing? Why are we doing that for? So I think this is a, it's a good question because it's a little bit confusing because we were talking about, you know, masking doesn't really protect people in the public. And now all of a sudden we're putting masks on everybody and we're kind of going all over the place. So what does it mean? When we say universal masking, the term I like to use to describe it is universal source control masking. And so this mask has a little different function than the mask that you wear to protect yourself in a patient uh, provider encounter. So what this is, is this mask is for really controlling your own respiratory secretions. And so this is why um, you wear this universal source control mask and that when you wear it, you're actually protecting other people from you. And when we have patients wear them also, we are using it to control their respiratory secretions. So the mask that the patient's wearing is to protect us from that patient's respiratory secretions. And the reason that we're doing this is because there seems to be, you know, pretty easy transmission with this COVID-19. And it does appear that it is definitely transmitted when you're in close contact with someone. We don't really know um, how much people shed virally as they are developing symptoms. And so this is to help us in that when people may be just beginning to become symptomatic and not be aware, we are containing their respiratory um, secretions. For also, many people have been raising the question of, you know, they, people have these atypical presentations. They come in for a chest pain, and then it's discovered that they might be a person that could be, have COVID and then are tested positive. So this also helps us by masking all of the patients to help to prevent exposures from these atypical presentations of COVID-19. Um, the other issue is that we have ongoing transmission within the community and our healthcare workers are often exposed outside of the medical center. And so this, again, this universal masking will help to protect each other from these incidental exposures to people that had a community exposures to COVID and then uh, maybe coming to work and becoming mildly symptomatic and um, having some viral shedding. And so we're trying to prevent transmissions. So universal source control masking is to try to contain an individual's respiratory secretions. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, the masks that we're using are, you know, basic masks, not your N95 mask. And, you know, classically, these masks are called surgical masks. 
Uh, of course, there's face masks, there's all these new terms, and in general, there are specific surgical masks now. But that original term came because, you know, when surgeons were operating back in the day, they would, you know, respiratory droplets would infect wounds. Uh, but by placing a cloth, essentially, a piece of, you know, a, a face mask on the surgeon, you're keeping those things in. Another good example that I use is tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is truly airborne and infectious. But those patients need to go to a clinic or go to an x-ray machine when they're admitted. And by placing a face mask on them, we also keep all of our hallways and respiratory techs and all those folks um, safe, uh, or x-ray techs, I should say. So again, the face mask contains. Um, it doesn't necessarily uh, fully uh, uh, prevent things uh, uh, like an N95. It may cover your mucosa if somebody you know, sneezes on you or something, um, but in general, it keeps stuff in. Right. And I think that's the other thing is that as we have a lot of people asking about, you know, cloth masks and people are sewing masks and donating them to hospitals, there's not a clear criteria um, that often um, can be evaluated to see if the mask meets a certain protective um, uh, measure like we would use from a droplet precaution standpoint to protect us from someone with influenza. But for source control, these cloth masks could be used for source control of the patient or um, our staff members, as long as when we're going to have a patient encounter, um, that we need to don the appropriate protective equipment to protect us from that encounter from the patient's um, respiratory secretions. Another important point is in previous coronavirus outbreaks, SARS-1, you know, MERS, um, there was so much nosocomial transmission um, that a, a term called nosocomial augmentation was used. There was so much transmission by patients and people from the community and providers that it just augments the, the epidemic itself. We're in a different situation here in the United States, but imagine those first hospitals in Wuhan where they started seeing people and you know other com- people from the community who may have gone to that same market were working and touching computers and coughing on stuff. Um, so that's part of the reason why you want to prevent it. Another thing is, look at all this social distancing that we're doing, right? We can't close a hospital. So we are congregating in a hospital uh, at a time where we should be separating ourselves as much as possible. And we're also seeing vulnerable people in the hospital. Um, in that same spirit, um, our Department of Public Health has mandated temperature checks. And that's something that we're going to start as well, right? Right. I mean, that is real important because... Even though we're masking, we still need to be monitoring people for symptoms and checking temperatures and making sure that people aren't coming to work as they're becoming ill. And people may not realize that they have a fever as it's starting. Um, the other thing is, whenever we can, trying to maintain that that distance, that physical distance, even while we're here. Obviously, when you're seeing patients, you can't. But when you're on the units, people should really try to keep at least six feet between each other, even though we're masked. We just really need to try to, to maintain that distance to prevent uh, transmission amongst us. And every time, every time there is a case, you know, think about maybe some of you have been called for a quantiferon after seeing a patient that, you know, perhaps we didn't realize had tuberculosis and then eventually did. You know, infection prevention and, and employee health does tracing investigations to see who was with who. Um, now, if an employee comes to, comes to work and is feeling fine, but then starts feeling tired and all of a sudden develops a fever, that those hours are probably the highest risk of of not realizing you're sick. But in a world where everybody is masked at work, 
and a febrile on arrival and on, on, on leaving, then those outbreak investigations are much smaller because there's just so many controls. Right, right. That's really, especially because, you know, for tuberculosis exposure, we have some time, you know, you check their quantiferon in about eight to 12 weeks to see if you convert. We, we, this is more time sensitive and that we have to try to identify people that have been exposed and it may take a day or two before we identify. And with um, the onset of symptoms related to exposures and COVID, it can be anywhere as minimal as two days before people start to develop symptoms. And then we have secondary exposures after that. So yeah, this is really hopefully going to help us to prevent um, further transmission within our healthcare worker um, teams. Absolutely. And then what is really the appropriate personal protective equipment? Um, like with many other new infections, sometimes it, it varies and it varies by the stage of the, of the outbreak. Uh, so for example, three or four or five, maybe six weeks ago, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't know that we had it here in the States. So we would put people in negative pressure rooms. We would wear all sorts of stuff. But what, what truly is a transmission? Um, and, you know, is it airborne? Do we have to wear what PPE should be wearing? Should we be wearing and why? I think it's unclear. I think, you know, it is a COVID, you know, it's a coronavirus and the coronaviruses um, seem to be spread by um, droplets. Um, during the SARS outbreak in 2003, um, there was the additional use of respirators and um, and eye protection. And so it raised the question of, you know, was it airborne transmission? I really don't know if it was the respirator protection or if it was the more aggressive eye protection, because we do know that droplets, um, it isn't just the mask, but it is protecting all of your mucous membrane. So I think that that is a critical part of this is making sure that your mucous membranes are, are protected through eye protection and a mask. Then the issue is around, do you need an N95? It seems that really um, probably you only need an N95 when you are um, at risk for having aerosols. So that would be if you're doing an aerosol generating procedure. You know, that might be a bronchoscopy, intubation, something that is inducing these droplets that might become uh, suspended that the respirator um, would be beneficial. However, for us at UIA Health, um, because we have had an increased supply of N95s, we have decided to use N95s now or um, uh, PAPRs for all, care of all the patients with COVID-19. So this is kind of a, an extra measure just to provide additional um I think sense of security for our staff as they are seeing patients that are either suspected or confirmed for having um, COVID. But the focus really should be on reserving N95s as much as possible for those high-risk encounters. Um, and that's something we have to continue to track and monitor related to our supply of our N95 respirators and our PAPRs. Great point. And, you know, droplet is essentially like those sprays that, that you know, those scented sprays and stuff. It, it, it's a spray, and certain size of droplets can travel further. Uh, bigger drops have, you know, higher weight and gravity, so they don't travel much. And this is where the six feet distance that we should be keeping from people when we go to Mariano's comes. Because in general, your droplets shouldn't travel that much. Airborne, which is what tuberculosis is, it's like that, that you know, that kid from the cartoon from peanuts right it's like a like a bull, like a bunch of stuff surrounding the per, the, the person 
Um, so ultimately, it stays in the air exactly. after, especially measles. Um, you know, exactly. measles has been shown to stay in the air after the person leaves the the environment. Even worse, and yeah. it stays suspended in the air, which it, it does not appear that COVID nineteen um, stays suspended in the air after the person has left. And so, so again, we're using these N ninety fives, but don't need extra measures like an airborne um, isolation room or a negative pressure room. Or N ninety five. Don't need. Don't need, you know, have the filtration to clear afterwards, um, things like that we don't need because um, it doesn't appear that it's it's suspended in air for prolonged periods of time. Right. And then, but if you make it, it can. And that's what that study from a few weeks ago showed, that that if you create, you know, aerosolizing procedures, it, it will, it can suspend itself for a little bit. But in general, it's like a spray. So your PPE is essentially to protect yourself as if it were a splash guard towards your eye, your mouth, your mucosa. And of course, your your hands and you know your body with a gown and so gown forth. Gown and gloves, right? And I think that you know the big article that people keep citing is that in you know a, a simulated chamber, they created you know the right humidity and then were able to suspend it in the air. But you know that was in um, a, an artificial right you know, and, in a laboratory, and it's hard just to tell how that really is happening in the in the environment. And I shared with my colleagues this article, this science brief from, from the WHO, that starts with a very robust, there is no evidence of airborne transmission after, you know, 80,000 infections in, you know, 12, 14, 16, how many, however many countries. So that's important to know. Right. Um, other things, what about extending and reuse? I, you know, I always summarize that when you're reusing, it's about making sure that the mask is clean or assuming that it's dirty, but also, is it functional? And we have to keep in mind that reusing or extending use is completely outside of the standard, but we are not in standard times. Right. I think that we're trying to preserve our supply of personal protective equipment. And so these are measures that are not what we would routinely recommend, but if they are done effectively, we can prolong our supply, which is relatively critical for, for everybody right now. Um, and I think the thing to remember is that you have to do it right and you have to understand so you don't put yourself at risk. You know, extended use is preferred first, meaning that you put on, especially an N95, you put it on and you... It's new and clean. Do not touch your face. It's new and clean. And then you leave it on while you see multiple patients that might be either suspected or confirmed to have COVID. And um, you just would doff your gown and gloves in between each patient so you're not having that contact of something that could be contaminated physically with a patient. But then for you, um, you would take it off and then it, it would be considered contaminated when you take it off. The issue of reuse is trying to cover it or protect the N95 so that um, it may be covered with either a surgical mask or you might cover the N95 with a visor that, that um, covers and, and make sure that there isn't any droplet impact on the N95 respirator. So then what you would do is you would doff the, the uh, visor and then that can be disinfected and used again or you doffed the surgical mask or the cloth mask that's covering your N95 so then underneath that N95 is clean. You can doff it, wash your hands, and then later you can re-don that um, to see another patient. And so I think the, the difference is extended and reuse. 
both of them have limitations. The extended use is hard for people. Um, we've got people right now that are complaining that they're getting um, sort of abrasions or pressure points because they've been wearing the N95 for prolonged periods of time, and so it's uncomfortable. And then with reuse, you have to be real careful that it doesn't become contaminated. And then as you put it back on, you're touching your eyes or your mouth, and then you could may potentially infect yourself. So it's, it's real important to understand what are the limitations of extended use and reuse. Yeah, and assume that your mask is dirty if you are reusing and never touch your face. In fact, right. next time you use a keyboard, don't touch your face before washing your hands. Because again, I think most of this infectivity and this are not comes from just, you know, prolonged survival in, in certain surfaces where, you know, you, you use a computer and then I do it, you know, especially hours or, or even a day later. So I think that's where some of the evidence of, of why this is perhaps more transmissible comes from. So just assume everything is dirty, especially a mask if you just walked in to see a patient. Right. Now, to, to finish off, because I know it's late in the evening, do you have anything to tell our residents about removing precautions or using testing or testing asymptomatic patients? Right. Um, so I think, first of all, a lot of people have been asking the question about asymptomatic people. Can I get tested? Because I need to know if I have COVID or I don't. And I think we, we're not testing asymptomatic people because if you're negative and you have no symptoms, and that tells you you're negative at that moment. But um, if you develop symptoms, we still need to test you again when you have symptoms to see if it's COVID. So it's sort of a waste of a test. And it really only provides reassurance for that day and doesn't provide any ongoing reassurance about, about whether or not when you're asymptomatic if you have COVID. So I think that's the question around asymptomatic. But then I think the other question is taking people out of isolation that either have tested negative or have tested positive and when did we take them out? I think it's important to highlight there can be false negatives from the test. And that could be from uh, a poorly obtained sample, an inadequate sample, or depending on where the person is in their um, illness. Maybe they don't have um, upper respiratory viremia, but they could have lower respiratory uh, viremia. And so they still may be positive, but not finding it within their nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal sample. Or we just didn't obtain it right. And so I think the issue is, you know, you want to get a good sample and if they're negative and you still really think that they have COVID, you leave them in isolation. You might consider retesting again in 48 hours, but then even if they're negative, if you still don't have an alternative diagnosis, if their syndrome is consistent with COVID-19, we want to keep them in isolation to prevent any other transmission within the hospital. Um, if there's questions, we're asking that you call us with an ID to help to walk through this. If there is an alternative likely diagnosis, we have to keep looking for other diagnosis, but but I think we really have to make sure that we're we're really understand before we take people out of isolation. And then when people are going to be discharged, if they're discharged before they're through their illness, which typically they recommend seven days from the onset, resolution of symptoms, and at least three days um, from the last fever so that people can be removed from isolation. It's hard in the hospital. We're really going to try to keep them in isolation until discharge. And then when they go home, we have to give them this guidance to isolate within their homes um, uh, if they're discharged before the end of their illness so that they don't expose those within their home. Um, so I, I think it, it's just important yeah. to know that tests are helpful, but they are not 100%. We still have to use our clinical suspicion yeah. um, as well. And that's that's very key. Um, I think sometimes the more you read about something, the more you realize you you know 
know much about something. And, and I think this test is a perfect example. That, that What's the quality of the test? Well, it's 100% specific. It's a PCR. But how sensitive it is it? It depends on the test itself, so what's happening in the lab. But the sample as well, is it obtained correctly and from the right site? And then when? Is the patient highly symptomatic or minimally symptomatic? Is the patient still shedding elsewhere in other body fluids? Who knows? There's a lot that we don't know. But it's important. So we can't, it's not as simple as just ordering a test. Um, but it's helpful that we have them and we should definitely use them for certain circumstances like people going to congregate settings and stuff like that. Right. And you mentioned the whole seven days, which sounds very similar to what we're doing with healthcare workers who developed symptoms. Um, it, what are we doing for, for quarantining folks? Because I know there's differences between the VA and the U. For uh, people that have been um, exposed and asymptomatic, um, we are letting them return to work now at UI Health, and that's partially because we're doing universal masking so that if people are going to develop symptoms, we've got some source control early on. And then we're also doing symptom monitoring so that we're trying to catch people before they're coming to work when they're ill. Uh, but anybody who is ill and having symptoms consistent with COVID, if we ask them not to come to work, they need to be at home and quarantine themselves from others, including within their home. And then we are prioritizing testing um, of our healthcare workers. So and making sure that you get connected with University Health Services. And now there's a link online on the internet for you to go and um, get logged in so that you can get testing right away um, to determine if you do have COVID and, um, and next steps on when you can return to work. Excellent. And I think with that, Dr. Blaisdell, it's 7.30 in the evening. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go back to your family and to dinner. Um, I will send out a survey so residents can ask us more questions. And then at some point, I'll, I'll bug you again. All right. Thanks a lot. Great talking with you. Okay. Thank you.